So it's my, ch- it's my chore, it's my job, it's, well, let me rephrase that. It is my pleasure to try to make things like Thucydides Peloponnesian War interesting to college kids. It's not always easy, but I do my best by God's grace. But I'm here today, and I'm covering or continuing our discussion on ethos and kind of the ethical implications of a life of worship, that the ethics is a life of worship. And I have the task slash joy tonight of covering ethics as worship and social engagement. Ethics as worship and social engagement. So my task tonight is, so we all sit in these chairs, and we hear Pastor Eric and your other pastors rightly divide God's word for you on a weekly basis. We've heard Larry on the first week introduce this concept of ethics as worship, introduce the concept that what we do in life matters, introduce the concept that it's not just the big things that matter, it's, all the, it's also the small things that matter. And so he convicted all of us talking about how we shouldn't speed. And I got mad because then I couldn't speed for a while. And if I do now, I have to go on my knees and repent, right? Everybody, everybody there yet? Okay. And then Jonathan last week, he came and he kind of built upon that foundation that Larry had laid for you and talked about just what, what a person who truly believes that ethics is worship, what that person looks like, that they, they have a certain character and they live a certain way according to God's word. And tonight, I have to begin to lay out for us exactly what that means in, in certain aspects of our life. And so my task, again, my job is that what does it look like when we try to engage culture? What is a life that truly believes that ethics is worship? What is a life that truly believes that when we live, when we breathe, when we drive, when we speak, when we work, that is worship? What does that life look like when we engage the political process? That's really, often that's kind of one of the more difficult things. Everybody has an opinion, but as a believer, how do we deal with it? How do we engage? How do we do those things? And then still keep a, a, a solid biblical Christian witness. How do we do those things? And so that's my task tonight. In order to kind of get us, get our brains flowing, kind of get the juices going up there, get the wheels turning, I have a case study for us. And as you all probably know, back in May, May 8th, we had a pretty significant vote on May 8th about Amendment 1. You probably know about it, being South Carolinians, not living too far from us. And I've got a couple quotes here from a Charlotte Observer writer named Michael Gordon, and he was writing on Charlotte Observer Online on May 9th. And I have a couple quotes from different pastors about the Amendment 1 vote. The first, and so this is, this is quoting um, Michael Gordon, this first, this first quote here. It says, writing a Bible-influenced coalition that cut across political and racial lines, the marriage amendment stormed to approval Tuesday, making North Carolina the latest state to put stronger legal barricades before same-sex unions. One pastor responds, This was an issue of standing on the principle of God's word. The marriage is between one man and one woman, and I believe that message has gotten across, said the Reverend Mark Harris, a pastor of First Baptist Church of Charlotte, and a leader of the state campaign for passage. And then we have other pastors, and they respond quite differently to the passage of the marriage amendment. The Reverend Robin Tanner of Charlotte, a leader in the effort to defeat the amendment, looked beyond Tuesday's loss. Hope lives on in this place we call home. The pastor of Piedmont Unitarian Universalist Church said in a prepared statement, Hope is our promised companion, the equality of all our promised land. Add the Reverend Murdoch Smith, pastor of St. Martin's Episcopal Church, the goal is not destroyed, just delayed for the moment. And so, as you all know, for us North Carolinians, this was a pretty big vote. I mean, national news. We had professors at Southeastern on the Daily Show being mocked. And so it, was, it wasn't anything small that was going on in North Carolina. And then we have people claiming to be representatives of the church on both sides of the issue. 
taking not, not just on both sides of the issue, but taking active roles in seeing that the amendment is either defeated or accepted. So the question then becomes, if, if the people who are saying they represent the church are on both sides of this issue, does the church really have a unified voice? Do we have a voice? Do we have something that we can offer to the political world? Or should we even be offering anything to the political world if we don't have a unified voice? How do we do that? How do we engage? How do we, how do we worship well when we engage politically? And so hopefully tonight we'll try to answer some of those questions. I told your pastor that I'm probably going to raise more questions than I'll answer tonight. And then I'll let him deal with all the mess that comes afterwards. But clearly one of the, well, not one of, the first place we need to begin when we ask any questions like this is the Scriptures. It is our source of authority. So that's where we're going to begin tonight. We're going to look at relevant texts that speak to this notion of social engagement or political involvement. Now, I wish we could just kind of open the, open the Scriptures, fold back the pages, point to hesitations 2-3, and say, this is how we do it. Unfortunately, we don't have hesitations 2-3, do we? Everybody, no. Yeah. Okay. Make sure. Make sure no one's saying yes. Okay. So what we have to do is we kind of have to pull back the Scriptures and kind of make an, make an assessment of the, what we do have and then take the principles that are offered to us in Scripture and apply them to our lives today. And the best place to start is where God started. In Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 28. Then God said, Let us make men in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So he created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven. Every living thing that moves on the earth. And so... When God created man, when God created man and woman, he gave them a task. He gave them a chore. He gave them a responsibility to have dominion, to rule, to govern the earth, right? So from the very beginning, we can see the, the, very, the very seeds of governance for man and woman. There's, there's almost a sense when, when God created man and woman, he assumed, he didn't assume, he commanded that man would govern, man would rule man would have dominion. How did man do? Not very well. It didn't take him very long, did it? Now, people say, well, why did Adam do that? How can he mess up something so perfect? He was in the Garden of Eden. It was beautiful. He was with a beautiful woman. He had all the food he could eat. And I hear, I've, hear, I've heard people say that to me often. And I look at them and say, you remember my name's Adam, right? And he probably lasted a lot longer than I would have. Because I know how sinful my heart is. But it, it didn't last very long for Adam and Eve. They messed up. And so this, this perfect garden that God placed them in to, to keep, to cultivate, to have dominion over, is gone. They've been removed from it. Not only have they been removed from it, God put an angel with a flaming sword in front of it so they couldn't get back to it. And then, just a few generations down the line, it had gotten so bad that God was willing to wipe out all of creation except for Noah and his family. That's how bad it got. Just six chapters down the line. And guess what God did? He wiped out all of creation except for Noah and his family. And then we come to Genesis chapter 9, and we see something that, that sounds very familiar for what, to what we just read. Genesis 9, 1-7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will reckon, require a reckoning. For every, beast in the, for every beast I will require it, and for man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. 
Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And so there's a sense where even after the fall, God has a desire. God longs for man to rule. And so this, this, this ruling, this sense of man's dominion upon the earth didn't end because of sin. God restores it, or God, God makes a point to, to say, it's not over. In fact, Noah, I want you to continue it. I want you to continue this, this, this creation ordinance that I've given Adam and Eve. And the fact that, that he gives them this, this prohibition against killing other men, and the fact that man is still created in God's image, there's still a price to be paid. Who is it that executes that justice? Who is it that executes the punishment for taking life? It's got to be a legitimate authority. It's got to be someone who has authority over other men. So there's, again, we see almost an assumption that God is assuming that a rule is going to take place. Someone is going to rule. Who's this someone? It's man, men, a group of people. There's assumption that there will be governance in the world. Now, as we know... From the Old Testament, God eventually called out a people from Canaan in Abraham. And he developed in Egypt a numerous people. And he freed them from Egypt. And he led them into the promised land eventually. And when they got there, God is their ruler. God is their sovereign. But when the people of Israel, they look around and they see all the other nations around them. And they see these other nations. What do these other nations have? They have kings. What do the Israelites want? They want a king. They say, they, so they come to Samuel and they say, well, we want a king, Samuel. Appoint us a king. And so we see that in 1 Samuel 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel in Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So the nations have influenced Israel. And Samuel comes back and tells them, no, no, wait a minute. You really want a king? The God of all the earth is your sovereign. And you're asking for a king. And he warns them against it. And then they come back and they respond this way. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. But there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. There's a problem with that. In Deuteronomy, God's already told them who's going to fight their battles. In Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 to 4, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you should not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and say to them, Here, Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. And so these Israelites who are crying out to be like the nations around them, to have a king that leads them out to battle, are forgetting something very fundamental. That it is God who is fighting for them. Yet... They want to be shaped by the nations around them. They want their king, just like the other nations. And basically the rest of the New Testament is Israel is the Israelites struggle with the nations around them, the judgment that comes upon them because they continue to be conformed and transformed by the nations rather than God's word. Now, at points, we have good kings over the nation of Israel who draw the law, who draw their attention back to the law. But for the most part, we we have a continued just kind of a down, downward spiral for the nation of Israel, don't we? Until 400 years of silence. And then we have the coming of the Christ. And what does he have to teach us about it? What does he have to teach us about political engagement? And one of the, probably the, the verse, if you ever heard a discussion about political engagement, if you ever heard a discussion about societal engagement in the Christian life, you've probably heard 
Matthew 5, 13 to 16, out of the Sermon on the Mount. You shall be the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the call of Christ upon us, that we would be two things, salt and light. How do we do that in this passage? Well, we do good works so that others may see it. And then do what? Give glory to God. So when you engage society, you're doing two things. You're being salt. You're being light. You're, being, you're, you're, you're shedding light on something and you're preserving something. Salt is a preservative. It's a flavor enhancer. And then one of the verses, one of the passages that are often debated is Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to engage him in, in his words, how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God faithfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you have not swayed by appearances. You are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin of the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is on this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So clearly, the the teachers, the Herodians, they didn't have pure intentions. They weren't really hungry for knowledge. They were just wanting to trap Jesus. And so they asked him about this idea of the tax. And they were trying to, to trap Jesus because whatever Jesus said, if he gave a positive answer, if he gave a negative answer, guess what? He was going to be in hot water. If he said, yes, we should give, we should give our taxes, we should pay taxes, he was going to be in trouble with the Jews. If he said, no, we shouldn't pay taxes, he was going to be in trouble with the Romans. What was he going to do? Now, the Roman coinage of Denarius itself had the image of Caesar and had the image of Caesar imprinted on it in his inscription. And often those coins stated had a statement of his divinity on it. And so the teachers, the Herodians, they knew what was going on. They knew what they were doing when they brought him the denarius. And they laid it at his feet or put it in his hand. Because they understood the significance of that image. They understood the significance of that idol. And so Christ, being much brighter and gifted than I am, offered no answer other than, well, give to, th- give to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. In other words, it seems that what Christ is saying is, <clears throat> you know what? The government may have legitimate authority. They come and they require something. Give it to them. Government comes and asks for taxes. They might have a legitimate authority. Pay your tax. But on the same time, he wants to be very careful and say that let's not be idolatrous in how we review government. Let's not be idolatrous in how we interact with the government officials. Because not only does the government demand things, God demands things. God demands your so there's a sense where Jesus says, you know what? Give the coin, give the nearest to Caesar because it has an image on it. Give yourself to God because you have his image on you. And so the apostles offer us a little bit of help as well. Um, Romans is often where a lot of individuals will turn to kind of discuss this topic. In Romans 13, 1 to 7. 
Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, who resists, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. The rulers are not a terror for good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. What is Paul saying? He's saying these institutions, these authorities, they're instituted by God. They are servants of God. God uses them to carry out His judgment. Therefore, submit to them. It is for your good that you submit to them. If you fail to submit to them, guess what's going to happen? You're going to incur the judgment. You're going to incur the judgment which God brings upon them. You're going to incur judgment. These government officials God established. Peter continues the thought in 1 Peter 2, 13-17. Be subject to the Lord. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or as governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, living as people who are free, not using their freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So Peter even carries it further. When you obey, when you submit to these government authorities, you are demonstrating the foolishness of the rest of the world who are failing to do that. He says, honor the emperor. Honor him. And continuing this thought in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, says what? Don't just honor them, but pray for them. Offer prayers of thanksgiving. Offer a supplication for these emperors. And so there's an assumption being made in the New Testament, I would, I would say both in the Old and New Testament, that there will be a governing authority over you, established from the very beginning when God created man and woman. So it's not a debate of should we have governance we have governance. How should we respond? At least according to the New Testament, we should recognize it's a legitimate governance. But we shouldn't hope in that. We shouldn't put all our eggs in the basket of government. Maybe we shouldn't get so worked up by political discussions because our hope is not political. But there is legitimate authority. Now, you may already be thinking, what if they are requiring me to do things that are unbiblical? What if they're asking me to partake of actions that go against my conscience, that go against the clear teaching of God's Word? We have an example of that. In Acts, the rulers, they take Peter and John and they bring him in jail and they begin to question them. And finally, after have, finding there's really nothing we can charge them with, they beat them. They say, well, just stop preaching Jesus. And what do they say? In Acts 4, 19, 
we must obey God rather than man. And so clearly, again, as Jesus broke down the fact that you give to Caesar the thing that has his image on it, you give to God the thing that has his image on it yourself, in the same way, the apostles were saying, look, we have an authority. It is God. We recognize your authority. But when God calls us to do something, clearly, what do we do? We obey God rather than man. And so, again, I probably answered none of your questions with those texts. And I recognize that. But they should teach us. They should inform us. They should direct us. They should shape us in how we do engage political thought, right? And so how one handles these texts or doesn't handle these texts affects the way you're going to interact with society at large. And historically, this has been the case. In a book titled Christ and Culture, a gentleman named H. Richard Niebuhr has kind of laid out for us basically five categories how believers have engaged culture in the past. And these five categories that he has titled, just like the name of his book, Christ and Culture. And the first, the first category that he lays out for us is Christ against culture. And you see, if we have a slide up, we're missing the... Basically, there's, there's a timeline or a graph of Christ and culture. So just I'll try to paint it for you. If that's okay with you guys, I'll try to paint it for you because it's not there. So we have Christ against culture. And basically, if we had the graph up, that would be the very far extreme right. Now, those who have kind of interacted with culture in this way argue that Scripture and experience are, are, are opposites. and They shouldn't affect each other. They're against each other. The world is sinful, and so in order for Scripture to rule, in order for us to live biblically, we have to escape the world. We have to go leave the world and set up a new culture. Now, there are various examples of this throughout Christian history. One you probably know best is John the Baptist. Where was he from? The desert. He wore camel skins, ate locusts and wild honey. The monasteries were set up for the purpose that the monks could leave the world and seek holiness and seek purity under the assumption that what? You can't seek holiness and purity accurately when you're in the world. It's Christ against culture. Now, what's funny is we, we viscerally probably would respond to this by saying, yeah, that's not right. Jesus has called us to be salt and light. Right? We have to be in the world. So we can't be these people who flee the world in order to seek holiness. But isn't that what we sometimes do anyway? Don't we often create Christian cul-de-sacs where we kind of insulate ourselves from everybody else? We have our own sports leagues. We have our own softball teams. We have our own karate. Right? I'm not saying that all those things are wrong, and there may be a place for them. But we need to be careful when we begin to judge people who have done this in the past. I mean, especially given kind of the nature of subdivisions nowadays. I don't know how many of you live in a subdivision. I live in a subdivision. And outside of my children playing with the other children, you know how often I interact with my neighbors? Here's how it goes. Garage door goes up. Car comes down the road. Goes in the garage. Garage door shuts. You guys know that experience? Maybe it's you. I don't know. But most of my neighbors, that's kind of their life. Garage door goes up. I wave at the mailbox. They might wave. Car goes in. Garage door shuts. How do you you engage culture like that? It's tough. But oftentimes we have pendulums going on. You have one extreme, go to the other extreme. The other extreme would be on the the extreme opposite of Christ against culture. And this would be the Christ of culture. Human experience and perspective are innately good. Okay? So we allow experience to kind of direct to God. And since human perspective and human experience are, are good, 
We need, to, we need to interpret Scripture according to our experience. We need to let our experience guide and direct us. Now, for, for the most part, most liberal branches of Christianity, this is them today. Their experience is, well, homosexual, homosexuality can't be bad. Therefore, when we read the passages of Scripture, we need to reread them differently according to what our experiences is telling us. Um, one of the quotes I read in the case study was from a universalistic Unitarian church. They're allowing their experience to shape the way they interpret Scripture. And so those two extremes, we as evangelicals, we as Southern Baptists would probably say we're not there, right? We don't live in these two extremes. So as we begin to move to the center, you may be, you may be able to kind of put yourself in one of these places. And one of those places is Christ and culture and paradox. Now, this is the idea that there are two separate kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of the world. Or there is a kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of man is, is basically man's common experience. The kingdom of God includes things like Scripture and God's law. And there, there's parts in this world that, that Scripture just doesn't affect life because sin is so pervasive. And therefore, people who, who are not part of the kingdom of God, Scripture has a limited sphere of applicability. That's hard to say, applicability on them. So therefore, you have kind of this dilemma. And believe it or not, I was, I've been going through a class at church called Your Work Matters to God. And this morning, we were bumping up against this. You know, how do we, how do we apply Scripture to, to jobs that, that may seem good? But then they, they, it's like, how, do, how does a Christian be a bartender? How does a, how does a Christian, give me an example, I'm a hotel manager. I know that everyone who checks in the hotel isn't above board. I know that husband is bringing mistress to the hotel sometimes. How do I do that? How do I interact with that? How do I continue to be a hotel manager and continue to uphold God's word? And how does it apply to me as a hotel manager? And so we kind of have this paradox going on. Right? So Christ and culture and paradox. Believe it or not, most of the Lutheran church today kind of lives in this area. They believe, as Martin Luther did, that there was two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And the scripture really applies to the kingdom of God and only has limited applicability to the kingdom of man. Now, we live in the world. We live in the kingdom of man. How do we interact? What Martin Luther will say, will say things like, well, he was posed the question, should we be soldiers? Should Christians be soldiers? His response, who else better to be a soldier than a Christian? Should Christians be politicians? Well, you're in the world. The fact of the matter is, the world needs politicians. Who better to be a politician than someone who is guided, directed, led by the truth of Scripture? And so you have this paradox we are part of the kingdom of God, but we live in reality in the kingdom of the world. How do those two interact? And so there's been that idea of paradox. And there's also the idea of Christ above, king, above the kingdom. And this idea that sin doesn't really affect the human experience and perspective. Or excuse me, sin does affect the human experience and perspective to some degree. But not as, sin is not as pervasive as the scripture seems to make it out. So therefore, what the church needs to do is we need to just kind of come along and help out. So some of the things that the church does is feeds the poor. They start orphanages. They minister to widows. They seek to bring liberation to people who are oppressed. All excellent things to do. And all, according to James, probably something that is pure and undefiled religion. But then they say, that's all it really needs. 
because sin isn't as deep as, as the Scripture makes it out to be. Therefore, we just have a social gospel. Have you ever heard that term? We just have a gospel that comes to their aid without giving them the depths of their sin and their need for Christ. And so finally in the center, and I think probably the, the most well-balanced place in which we as believers have historically and should interact with culture is this the idea that Christ the transformer of culture. That we understand rightly that people are sinful, that people are depraved. Society itself is neutral. Society is just, some, what is society? A group, a nation, a state of individuals, right? Individuals, we're sinful. At least I am. I don't know about you. We're sinful. Therefore, what messes up society? It's us. Therefore, what does society need? What does the corruption of society need? It needs a Savior. It needs Jesus Christ. Therefore, culture shouldn't be something to be avoided. It shouldn't be something to be perfected. It shouldn't be adopted. It should be transformed. It should be radically altered by the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, the only way to to really do this is to transform individual hearts. As you transform individual hearts, guess what? Society begins to change. Therefore, we have to allow Scripture to be the the top source of authority. We have to allow allow it to be our, our guiding principle. Morality, ethics, your life should be judged in light of God's revealed truth. And in doing that, guess what? You're a transformer. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a a minute. And so a a real ethic, an ethic of worship maintains both biblical authority and social engagement. We can't just sit in our Christian cul-de-sacs, studying our Bibles, seeking purity, and never be in society. We've lost it if we have. We've lost the call of Christ to go and make disciples. We've lost the call of Christ to be salt and light. Salt doesn't do any good sitting in the shaker. And so... We, as individuals, we have to engage and seek to transform society. And in fact, God tells us that in so doing and engaging society, guess what? We, we, we condemn society by our actions. And therefore, part of being light means we are shedding light on some of the things that are wrong. In Hebrews 11, 7, this is what, this is, what is said of Noah. Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Listen to this. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. How did Abraham condemn the world? Obedience. He was simply obedient. And in his obedience, condemnation came upon the world because the world looked at Noah and recognized there's something different about Noah. There's something different about what Noah's doing. There's something different about the way Noah's living. And so he drew, he shed light upon them. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, 14 verse through 17, he says this, 2 Corinthians 14 and 17, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. So what is He doing through you? He's spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Himself everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death. To the other one a fragrance from life to life. Who was sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God 
we speak in Christ. What are you? You are the aroma of Christ to the world. The aroma of Christ. How does the world know God? Through you. Therefore, not engaging culture is not an option. You have been called to be salt and light. And and ultimately, it's really an issue of the second greatest commandment. Do you really love your neighbor? God calls you to. Do you really love your neighbor? We know that living in light of God's character, in light of God's demands, is the best way to live. He created you. He shaped you. He loved you so much that He calls you a treasured possession and sent His only Son to die for you. And we know, because we have been shaped, we have been molded by God's Word, that living in fellowship, living in communion, living under God's authority in His law is the best way to live. And we know from the Scriptures that the best way to make that known is through the Gospel. Through telling, through sharing, through living out the Gospel that Jesus Christ shed on the cross, His death, His burial, His resurrection, for the remission of sin is, is how that will ultimately happen. Ultimately, the way, the, the best way, the greatest way to love your neighbor as yourself is what? Give them Christ. Right? So the Holy Spirit comes and He works with you in your efforts, in the way you live, in the way you speak to your neighbors. To love them. To tell them one of the greatest ways you can love somebody, tell them, a, tell them they're a sinner. It's not easy. I've got family members who aren't saved. I've got family members who don't, who don't know Christ. And you know the best way I can show them how I love them? Call them a sinner. And then show them the depths of their sin. And then show them that God's grace is is as high as the heavens are above the earth, that He has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west, that His love and His grace is deeper and higher and wider and thicker and all the other edges I can think of than your sin. That's the greatest way you can love your neighbor. But we also know, guess what? You don't always get a positive response, do you? So, if we believe, according to the Scripture, that what guides us and what's best for us is to live in light of God's character and His demands, maybe we should seek to offer protection to our neighbors with God's Scripture and God's demands. This is kind of how you raise your kids, isn't it? I'll give you an example. I've got two little boys, well, not so little anymore, ten and nine. When they were first born, and they began to crawl, and they began to kind of waddle, guess what one of the rules was when mom or dad's in the kitchen using the oven? Don't touch the oven. You've all probably had a rule about something similar like that. Did they understand why that rule was in place? Is it because we love them? Because we, we care for them? Because we want to protect them? They didn't understand that. But the rule is still in place, right? To protect them. Because... Mom and Dad love them. And so there may be a sense where, guess what? We believe that the best thing for society is what? To live in light of God's character. And therefore we vote along those lines. We teach along those lines. We engage culture along those lines. So we are in a church, right? What is the church's role in all of this? What is your role? What is my role? Um, and we get to a section here where I've got several quotes, and a couple of them are kind of long, so bear with me. We'll be done in a couple minutes. But bear with me because I think these quotes are helpful to get us to think through this issue. Because, yes, we as individuals, we engage culture. But we're not just individuals. We are called to be 
part of a body. We are called to be part of the church. And this is a quote from Max Stackhouse in, a, in an article in First Things called The Premature Postmodern. He's talking about the church. He says, modern churches lack social significance because, contrary to what's been the case in the preceding ages, they lacked a high view of the church. 20th century churches in the West contrast with their ancestors who knew that ecclesiology is indeed essential to Christian social philosophy. Since the church is the place where persons are formed theologically and ethically to live responsibly in the wider society. Church teaches you how to be what? A good citizen. At least it should. And there's a sense where in evangelicalism, we've made the gospel too small. We've made the gospel nothing but eternal significance. Here, accept Christ so you don't go to hell, so you live in, in heaven with God forever. That's the gospel. That's not just the gospel. Is that the gospel? Part of it. But the fact that the gospel should be transformative for all of your life, as Larry and Jonathan has tried to lay out for you in the last couple of weeks, part of that means the gospel transforms, again, I'll repeat it, the way you think, the way you speak, the way you communicate, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time. The gospel guides your thoughts. The gospel guides your de- deeds. And therefore, the church should be training you, me, all of us in this way. The gospel is totally transformative. And so, what should the churches be doing? What is the role of the church? The church should be making disciples. The church should be discipling you, us, in this way, to firmly and truly believe that the gospel is transformative. And in making disciples, guess what? They're making the best citizens they could possibly be. Why? Because what's best for the world? God's rule, God's character. God's authority. And disciples tend to live and reflect an ethic that reflects God's kingdom. Again, another quote. Lawrence E. Adams in a book called Going Public. um, He says this. Now, this is probably the longer one, so bear with me. The church is not merely an association of individuals, each pursuing the fruits of personal salvation. It is the public representative of Christ, who is king of all the earth, the visible expression of his lordship and redemption. This can be very difficult to grasp, especially for individualistic Westerners in the current age who have learned to place worship, morality, revelation, and personal growth in the bin labeled private or personal. Under these assumptions, to realize the need for a public church is to call for a political church that supports candidates, advances policy positions, organizes voters, and sponsors protests. Under a different understanding, a public church orders life in a certain way, primarily because it's the will of God and true to created human nature, but also because doing so serves the larger common life of all. The church, then, also serves as a public space in which men and women learn civility and are formed in the virtues that serve in the other arenas of public life. But the public service of the church is not only training the individuals, it is also in serving its purposes for the entirety of the public life. For public life is not just the sum total of individual lives. It is the pattern of community responsibility and commonwealth that constitute human experience according to the creational purposes of the Creator. What is the church? It is the visible representation of Christ in the world. That's what you are. That's what we are. And therefore, when we are living out a life of ethics as worship, we are disciples. And we are showing the world We are reflecting to the world 
God's original, intended, creational purpose. That he longs for, that he desires that we live according to the truth to which he has given. That's you as a church. That's the role of the church, to make disciples in this way. And it is what is best for society, to live out according to God's creational, ideal purpose. I mean, there's numerous examples of how this, is, how this truth can be demonstrated, can be pointed out. I mean, I was, I was shocked at some of the statistics. I just, I just kind of did a search about some of the social ills of the United States. And, I mean, just I kind of sat there and was just kind of doing the whole Google scroll. You ever get that kind of that Google gaze where you're just kind of scrolling, th- scrolling through? And, uh, I mean, just think, I just, I just, all I did was type up marriage or broken homes and juveniles. That's all I did through the Google search for that. And there was study after study after study after study that demonstrated how close of a link there is to juveniles and incarceration and broken homes. And yet, do we take seriously what God says about marriage in the church? You want to better society? You want to transform society? How about this? How about you take seriously your marriage? I mean, one... Let me just read you some of the statistics. And this is from the Bureau of Justice. 72%, read that again, 72% of incarcerated juvenile delinquents grew up in broken homes. 63% of all youth suicides are from fatherless homes. That's from the U.S. Department of Health. Um, A cooperative study from Princeton University and University of Pennsylvania. They studied 6,000 males from between the ages of 14 and 22 between the years of 1979 and 1993. And they found that boys whose fathers were absent from the household had double the odds of being incarcerated. That's not good for society. You know what's good for society? Understanding God's love, God's purpose and God's direction for marriage. It's part of being a disciple. And so, part of being salt and light, again, is what? Living the way God longs for you to live. If we as a, if we as a church, big C, evangelicals, if we live in such a way that we truly uphold marriage, if we truly teach people that marriage is a reflection of Christ and His church, that it, it, is, it is something that is sacred, that is something that should not be defiled, something that should be protected, something that should be upheld, guess what that's going to do to the world? It's going to shed a light on just the, the danger of broken homes. It's going to shed a light on the divorce epidemic. It's going to, it's going to and, and if we are doing it, we are, off, we are offering a, a preservative. We are being salt. Now, very quickly, I know I'm almost out of time, if not already, so bear with me. A couple more minutes. I know the question that may be rising, raising your brain, maybe ruminating, because it does in mine. Often you will hear this statement. Adam, I understand. We want the world to live by God's standards, and I understand that. And the best way to do that is, guess what? Share the gospel. But not everybody believes the gospel. So how can we therefore require the world to live by a standard that they don't believe? Now, that's a long way of saying it. You've probably heard it said like this. You can't legislate morality. You may have said that. You can't legislate morality. problem with that statement every form of legislation every form of legislation is a legislation of morality every form we keep going back to it why is there a speed limit sign I believe it says 45 on this road right here why is that there it's a legislation of morality it's a legislation that says guess what human life is valuable and Humans drive on this road. Humans 
maybe walk on this road. Humans maybe use this road to run on. And therefore, for the safety of human beings, we're going to set a limit on how fast you can drive on this road. That's a legislation of morality. Every form of legislation is a legislation on morality. The question is, whose morality? Whose morality is it going to be? If ethics is all of life, if life and ethics is a life of worship, then this idea that there is amoral, there is non-moral legislation is false. Morality will be legislated no matter what people claim. And again, another quote, Richard John Newhouse in the Naked Public Square says this, We should resist being taken in by inflated and romantic views of politics. It is the interest of the politician and the hoarders of people who make their living by talking about what politicians do to disguise the stark and simple truth that they are engaged in getting and keeping power. Power, in turn, is the ability to get other people to do what you want and not to do what you do want to do. What does that mean? There's a morality there. They're seeking power to make you do what they want you to do. People who make their living doing this are said to govern. And if that's the case, we can't afford to not engage. We can't afford to be silent. We can't afford to sit on the sidelines. Again, Newhouse. Nonetheless, attention must be paid to the political. Not because everything is political, but because if attention is not paid, the political threatens to encompass everything. The proper word for the state of affairs in which the political encompasses or aspires to encompass encompass everything is totalitarianism. And so we as believers, if we truly believe that what God has for us is best, and we truly love our neighbors, we'll try to give them that, right? And even even in the sense where they may resist the gospel, if we truly love our neighbors, we'll try to engage politically, right? To protect them from the dangers of the sin that is so easily ensnares in the path in in which they are walking down. And so we can't not engage. We can't. Or you'll be swept away. We will be swept away. And as good disciples, we will engage with the gospel and with love and with humility. We will let the scripture inform us. We will we will be transformers of culture in our engagement. We will make disciples that do that. We will protect others from sin the best way we can. But ultimately what kind of the characteristic that we should exude is this. And I think this is probably where often people who don't agree with us, this is probably where they struggle the most. We need to exude, we need to live out a, an attitude and a sense of humility. Oftentimes, when talks are given in churches, what is, what is often drawn out is just a, a level of arrogance that doesn't need to be there. We need to exude humility. And I'll leave you with a couple quotes. D.F. Kelly, in The Religious Roots of Western Liberty, he says this, Before the church goes forward in a secular, God-denying world, it must first go on its knees before God for its own lack of devotion to Him and lack of conviction about His truth. For we all talk, for all our talk, if we keep denying God where it matters, the seculars can do, do, do nothing but disdain us. Finally, we have some repentance to do before our secular culture. If we appear to be more concerned with our own rights than with the temporal and eternal well-being of the very people with whom we do not agree, then we will have little to say to them. 
Are you more concerned about your own rights than you are about loving your neighbor well? And so oftentimes we talk about cultural engagement. We talk about engaging culture. We talk about getting out and, and voting on certain issues, on certain topics for certain, for certain candidates because they align with us about certain issues. The truth of the matter is often we don't really love God. At least not how he wants us to. Our devotion is anemic. Our devotion is weak. And then we don't really believe his word in the way that we live, as Larry's pointed out to you in the first week. And then we go and we go out and cry out to the lost world and say, live the way we live. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so our cry should sound something like Justin Martyr, who was a second century Christian, faced with kind of the spread of secularization and the hostility that was following closely behind it. He says this, and this is a paraphrase. He says, look at our lives. Look at our gospel. Such a look will melt your hostility. Look at our lives. Look at our gospel. Such a look will melt your hostility. Does your life look like that? Are you so humble? Are you so committed to God that when you do engage culture, the secularist, the society, whoever that might be, looks at you and their heart melts because of the example that you are, because of the salt and light that you are? That's how you engage culture. By loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Worship in all that you do. Let's pray.